When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Hey folks, this is Mark Lintonmeyer. I want to present you here with the first 25% or so of a follow-up recording on Partially Examined Life episode 202 on Julia Kristeva's The Powers of Horror. We had a very good discussion on that, but our aims were divided between trying to outline broad themes of what she was concerned with, what philosophically we can get out of it, and actually interpreting the text. And given that the text is so difficult... I really wanted to do this to allow you to participate with me in going through just the first four pages line by line so you don't have to take my word or take Wes's word on what it means. You can actually hear it for yourself. So see if you like this sample. If you want to hear the whole thing, you can become a Partially Examined Life citizen or I've actually made this available even at the $1 level to Patreon subscribers. That's patreon.com slash partiallyexaminedlife. When I am beset by objection, the twisted braid of affects and thoughts I call by such a name does not have, properly speaking, a definable object. So object is in italics here, and I think we can figure out what it is just by context. The feeling, the twisted braid of affects and thoughts of abjection is not aimed at any particular thing. Even though in the discussion we've talked about, discussed with corpses, with the skin of the milk, with other gross food objects, with shit Those certainly sound like objects. But again, the horror does not lie just in that object because then you could become familiar with it. As Seth was saying, as soon as you become a caretaker for an infant or an elderly person or anyone else where you have to sort through feces on a daily basis, you could still be disgusted by it, but it's certainly not going to be existentially appalling. So insofar as you're experiencing abjection, it cannot just be aimed at that particular object. The object has to symbolize something beyond that. Now, does that mean that the feeling doesn't have a definable object? I mean, it seems like we've just defined one. Okay, so here's where Wes would probably speak up and say, you know what you're referring to in talking about an object is merely something that has a name, something that you can point to in particular. You are forgetting about psychoanalytic object relations theory. So let's shift over for a second to the Wikipedia article on object relations theory. I'm going to read some of that to you. Object relations theory in psychoanalytic psychology is the process of developing a psyche in relation to others in the environment during childhood. Based on psychodynamic theory, the object relations theory suggests that the way people relate to others and situations in their adult lives is shaped by family experiences during infancy. For example, an adult who experienced neglect or abuse in infancy could expect similar behavior from others who remind them of the neglectful or abusive parent from their past. These images of people turn into objects in the unconscious that the self, in quotes, carries into adulthood. Objects are usually internalized images of one's mother, father, or primary caregiver. All right, so in this, an object is not actually something in the world at all. It is a psychic phenomena. It is a locus of desire. It is something internal, an image that we have established based on social interactions that then has something to do with how we define ourselves. So you could picture the superego as the father image that becomes this little homunculus sitting on your shoulder, the angel telling you what to do. 
Another example that comes up later in this article is if your mother was mean to you, but yet you can't avoid wanting your mother's affection, then you posit yourself as having deserved that meanness, that you were bad. So you've got this image of the cruel mother in you, but you are not labeling it as cruel. You're instead letting it define yourself in negative terms as deserving of the cruelty. So this sounds different from the story in Hegel of establishing the existence of a self. This sounds different than what we were talking about even during the episode of a baby coming to realize that it is an independent organism from its mother. This is instead about defining the moral character of yourself as good and bad. And don't be afraid of the word moral there. It's really about establishing the focus of desire. So if the superego is there sitting on my shoulder telling me what to do, then a part of me desires to do what the superego is telling me to do. And in fact, since the superego is part of me, I am introjecting myself into that image. That is one of the technical terms that is often used in the psychoanalytic literature, including in the Kristeva. To interject is to imitate the unconscious adoption of the ideas or attitudes of others. So these objects, these mental images that we have within us are kind of little mini personalities, which are our introjections of what we perceive the desire of others to be. All right, end digression. Let's go back to the text. Let's read that sentence again. We're still on page one, second paragraph of the first section, neither subject nor object. When I beset by abjection, the twisted braid of affects and thoughts I call by such a name does not have, properly speaking, a definable object. Now, to me, clearly, we don't need that whole story about my internal dad, the superego, the internal mother, the initial object of desire. But of course, by talking about a psychoanalytic object as a focus of desire, we are in the same neighborhood as talking about abjection, if we're taking abjection as an emotional reaction. The question is, what is it an emotional reaction to? And perhaps we don't actually have emotional reactions, strangely enough, to things outside in the world, but only to things in our heads, things that are perhaps images of things outside in the world. So if we want to say that overwhelming existential terror does not have a definite object, it's just more a general anxiety about unnamed stuff, then that creates a problem because how could we have an image of that in our head, which if we're talking about a person would be an object in the psychoanalytic sense, how could we develop such a thing to actually have an emotional reaction to if the phenomenon in the world that we're trying to conceptualize is dissolute, is non-conceptualizable. It cannot be turned into an image. Kriseva continues, The object is not an object facing me, which I name or imagine, nor is it an object, an otherness ceaselessly fleeing in a systematic quest of desire. What is abject is not my correlative, which providing me with someone or something else as support would allow me to be more or less detached and autonomous. So that sentence sounds very much like the Hegelian master and slave picture, which Lacan and thus Kristeva is picking up on. But again, the potential distinction may be the emergence of self merely as an independent entity, independent in the metaphysical sense, distinguishable from other entities, versus what she says here, detached and autonomous, which sounds not just like metaphysically distinct and nameable. In other words, I am a me, I am distinct from the flood of nature around me, from the mass of other people, from the herd, but is saying something qualitatively about myself, detached and autonomous, something that is healthy. 
The abject has only one quality of the object, that of a being opposed to I. So in the metaphysical sense of object, in the idea that even apart from potential people in the world, you could establish yourself just by, say, working on some materials, then you could say that that sort of object is opposed to I. It is a correlative of me. It helps establish me. Of course, you know, I'm not actually sure of the psychological value or primacy or legitimacy of that practice. You need other people to establish the I. You can't just do it on an island by yourself because you're working on the coconuts and thereby establish yourself as distinct from the coconuts. I wouldn't want to discount the developmental advantages that you can get out of working on solid matter, creating a visible change in the world, but that's not going to be enough. According to this basically Hegelian picture, you need the recognition of other people. Let's look back at the sentence. The abject has only one quality, the object, that of being opposed to I. Now, that's very difficult for me to understand if I take object there in the psychoanalytic sense. So we've got the mother image or the father image, both of which are part of me, but they're also opposed to another part of me, and they're thereby constitutive of the other parts of me. Right, So it's not that I'm a whole person and the superego comes along, the, the angel on my shoulder, and is telling me things. And maybe there's a devil on my other shoulder telling me things. It's that in this process of splitting, you actually create both the ego and the superego, the me that the angel is talking to and the angel itself. So in that sense, the psychoanalytic object is opposed to I, opposed to the ego. And I guess if we want to say that any emotion that we are feeling is again not a reaction directly to the outside world, but is a reaction to something within us, then you could take Kristeva as saying that there is something in us, the abject, that is not a definable object, it's not an image of a particular person, it's not even a particular defined image, but it is still opposed to I. Now, is it constitutive of I then, in a way that I was just describing? I don't know, let's see. She continues, if the object, however, through its opposition, settles me within the fragile texture of a desire for meaning, which as a matter of fact makes me ceaselessly and infinitely homologous to it, what is abject, on the contrary, the jettisoned object, is radically excluded and draws me toward the place where meaning collapses. So let's look at that again. The way that an object constitutes itself through opposition is by settling me within the fragile texture of a desire for meaning, which makes sense. Even if you're talking about the object in question being not a person, not an eternal image, but the coconuts that I, as isolated island dweller, are dealing with, the way that making a giant castle of coconuts would establish me as an independent self is creating a desire for meaning, right? I've created this castle. I've created this cool thing. Now, the second part of this that desire for meaning, as a matter of fact, makes me ceaselessly and infinitely homologous to it. So that's interesting, and I'm not sure why the ceaselessly and infinitely is needed. But certainly if I create an image of a hating mother within me, and I establish myself as something deserving of that hate, then there is something, well, certainly symmetrical, if not actually homologous, in other words, not actually the same, is the way I define myself is not merely in opposition to the image of my mother, to that object. But the particular characteristics which I ascribed to the mother object are going to determine the characteristics that in turn are ascribed to the me that is established in opposition to that mother. 
Now, maybe this ceaselessly and infinitely part is a matter of the dynamic between the I and that opposing image, right? Because I already said that the image is in a sense me as well. They're both in my head. So it seems like the generation of that thing maybe is an ongoing process. That to stick with this example, if I've got the image of the mean mother, but yet I establish myself in reaction to that, perhaps my establishing myself in reaction to that, in turn sort of reposits the existence of that mother image so that it's sort of an endless cycle, a pretty bad cycle in this case. So that sounds like being ceaselessly and endlessly, infinitely homologous to it. All right, as opposed to that, this was all about the object. What is abject? On the contrary, the jettisoned object is radically excluded and draws me toward the place where meaning collapses. So she's going to make a lot about this place, about the jettisoned area. It's where meaning collapses. So it's outside of language, which, if you remember our Lacan episode, is the area of the real. As usual, that term, as Lacan uses it, should bother us. Because if we're talking about this field of existential dread, that's not part of the real, material, scientifically investigatable world. So the real is opposed to the symbolic. The symbolic is things that can be named, that behave in a law-like manner, that are the things that science can investigate. Again, Lacan calls this the name of the father. So it is very much associated with that internal object, the superego, the image of civilization, which could be a particular father figure, but maybe not. That is the symbolic world, and it is opposed to the real, which is all that is not articulated, not put into symbols, not subject to, according to our psyche, law-like behavior. Again, that's not actually positing something out in the world that is crazy, chaotic, but that's part of our psyche. This place where meaning collapses. Returning to the text, a certain ego, in quotes, that merged with its master, a superego has flatly driven it away. Right? So we've got the name of the father, the superego, this internal object of the father that in turn constitutes an ego. Well, now we've got a three-part relation. And this is really where Kristeva is going to be adding an extra element to the Hegelian story. For Hegel, it would just be the master and the slave. The master is kind of like the superego, treats the slave in a certain way, and the slave, perhaps, again, bolstered by going to work on the coconuts or whatever the slave works on, but the slave discovers that he has an autonomy. He has this image that the master has of him that he is internalized. He's got the internalized master, basically. But here we add the element that the master wants something in particular. The master, in declaring that everything is lawlike, in pushing civilization on us, is labeling a certain field of our experience as forbidden. Of course, Christophe is not the one who came up with the idea of adding the third element. This is the Oedipal Triangle. But let's put Freud aside for a second and just focus on Christophe's model of this in the process of abjection as so forbidden that it is not even something you can put into words, is not within the realm of civilization, which is the same thing in this context as the realm of that which can be put into words. It lies outside, beyond the set, and does not seem to agree to the latter's rules of the game. So the set, from context, just seems to be the set of things that can be named that obey certain scientific rules. The abject is posited as being outside those things. And yet... 
From its place of banishment, the abject does not cease challenging its master. Without a sign for him, for him is in parentheses here, without a sign for him, it beseeches a discharge, a convulsion, a crying out. So it does not cease challenging its master. What is the master here? Well, we've said the ego has merged with the superego in casting this thing out. So it's that merged ego and superego. In other words, the civilized part of you that it's challenging. It has some sort of mysterious power over you, probably because it is part of you. And if you take a part of you and try to write it out of existence, psychologically, that's probably not going to work. It's going to beseech a discharge, a convulsion, a crying out. All right, and here's that sentence that we talked about in the episode. To each ego, it's object. To each superego, it's abject. I think now I've said quite enough about to each ego, it's object. The added element here is that when the ego merges with the superego, in other words, when I take up the cause of the name of the father of civilization, then that generates a rejected residuum, the things that cannot be put into that symbolic order, because you really can't completely merge with your own superego. There's always going to be parts of you that can't be articulated, that will be rejected or abjected as a part of that process of trying to say, yes, civilization, I'm on your team. All right, so that's all you get. You can hear the rest through your partially examined life citizenship or on Patreon at even the $1 level. To learn about those options, go to partiallyexaminedlife.com support. Thanks.